Spectator podcast. We've got a new offer. You can get a free Brexit butterfly mug, as well as 12 issues of The Spectator for just £12, if you subscribe at spectator.co.uk forward slash mug. Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. And in a sign that all guests on the show go on to even greater things, we just found out this week that Karen Pierce is to become the UK's ambassador to the US. I spoke to her last year, so if you want to be refreshed on what she had to say and, and perhaps glean a few things about what she'll bring to the role, do check out that podcast. Just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash balls or look on the iTunes store. Now, Back to the new episode, I'm delighted to be joined this week by Aisha Hazarika, the former Labour advisor and current comedian and journalist. Hazarika served as a senior Labour advisor to both Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband. She has also worked for Gordon Brown. Aisha began her career as a comedian and these skills later came to use when she not only had to navigate Westminster, but also help write speeches and gags for various political leaders. When Harmon was attacked by Haig at PMQs for being pictured in a stab-proof vest, she responded quickly thanks to her aide, stating, Look, when it comes to fashion advice, I'm not going to take any from the man in the baseball cap. Hazarika helped draft the 2010 Equality Act and in 2016 received an MBE for services to politics. These days, Hazarika is on the other side of things, working as a columnist for the Evening Standard and performing political stand-up. She still, however, plays an active role in the Labour Party and has been vocal when it comes to who Jeremy Corbyn's successor should or perhaps shouldn't be. Thanks very much for joining us today, Aisha. Now, before we get on to the present day um, and the Labour Leadership Contest, what we like to do on this podcast is begin by rewinding to your early life. You grew up on the outskirts of Glasgow and the daughter of first-generation immigrant parents. Did you have a political upbringing? I didn't actually have very much of a political upbringing and I think that's partly because for a lot of immigrants they didn't feel it was their place to have a political opinion. They were more concentrating on sort of keeping their head down, not getting into trouble and sort of not getting any hassle either. So I think we were almost told that we didn't have permission to be political and I do remember when I told my mum that I was really interested in like politics and the Labour Party my mum was like, Aisha but the Labour Party is is not a place for a girl like you and it turns out she was right given the amount of abuse I now get from the Labour Party but we were political in the sense that but one of the things my parents did instill in me was knowing about politics and having an understanding that politics mattered watching the news was essential and we would do very long car journeys where my parents would test us on who the cabinet were so that's the kind of fun we oh, used wow. to have yeah yeah and did you excel compared to others yeah it was pretty good geek out and my favorite program growing up was spitting image which combined my love of politics and comedy so that might have been a, a, a wee marker for the future and you spoke or touched on there this idea that perhaps as an immigrant there was a sense that politics wasn't the place for you to be you were educated at an all-girls school around Glasgow and you previously said that you received some abuse for your background while at school. Would you say that there are points when you didn't feel very welcome? So I went to um, a local primary school for two years before I went to this all-girls school in Glasgow 
And when I was at primary school, very, very young, I was four, I do remember getting picked on because of how I looked. I remember getting called a packy. I also got called a jobby, which is sort of Glaswegian for a poo because of the colour of my skin. I remember being in the playground and nobody wanted to take my... Like, we were playing some silly game where you had to... And nobody wanted to touch me because I was a jobby. And that is the kind of thing which... I mean, kids are just silly at that age, but that does obviously stay with you but then I moved to this all-girls school and I have to say it was a lot better because it was just a bit it was a bit kinder and there were also a few more people that looked like me. And what were your childhood ambitions? We had various people come on this podcast and say that quite clearly they wanted to be prime minister from an early age and you had your cabinet quizzes so what was the plan Aisha around age eight? Okay so I had like a couple of plans and the first one was to be a member of the A-team that was like a very big part of my plan and I used to go around telling people at school that my parents weren't my real parents and actually my real parents were they loved that they loved that they were saying to people I wasn't they say that I'm not their own their daughter now to be fair they're like no she's not my daughter so I told everybody that my parents were no longer with us these people were that adopted me but my real family were the A-team and they were coming to pick me up at some point from this so that was my big plan my next plan was to be a newsreader I really wanted to read the news and my next plan was to get married to Rick Astley so I had like I had like quite ambitious plans and not all those plans in the nice way possible have come to fruition for you. Um, but well, I'm still hoping for Rick Astley. Still time, still time. You've had an unconventional route, as I mentioned in the introduction into politics. So I was wondering if you could talk us through kind of how you got to where you were in terms... You mentioned that you told your mother you were interested in the Labour Party. At what age did that happen? I think it was when I was pretty young because the Labour Party was such a huge part of Scottish politics. So for me politics was the Labour Party and just as a side issue when you see the collapse of Labour in Scotland right now you really see how big that fall has been from from, from Greece but I didn't feel political in a tribal way even through university I went to Hull University studied law I actually became political through being a civil servant so I became a civil servant in 1997 and I started life as a very junior admin girl delivering the post um, for the press office in the Ministry of Agriculture. And then I sort of worked my way up through the civil service being a press officer. I worked at the Home Office, I worked at the Department of Trade and Industry, and I eventually ended up in Downing Street. And that time working with the Labour government made me think, well, actually, my values very much align with what this Labour government is 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 trying to do and is achieving. And I feel, I suppose, spiritually and from a kind of a moral point of view aligned. So that made me become political. And I was conscious as a civil servant. I knew where the line was on being impartial, but I could feel myself getting naturally drawn closer and closer to that line. So I sort of thought, right, I think I am actually becoming more political than is appropriate for a civil servant and luckily enough for me I think people noticed me who were political special advisors people who knew Alistair Campbell I had done some work at number 10 and then I got asked to come over to the dark side and work for Tony Blair on his election campaign in 2005 so that's when I thought that's what made me think right yeah I I want to be political I want to leave the civil service and I want to be much more on the kind of being an advisor where you can get stuck in from a political point of view. I left 
to work on the 2005 election campaign. I couldn't have done that as a civil servant. And I just thought, this is going to be an amazing experience. And it was. I mean, that is the last election we won. It was an amazing campaign, just being at the heart of working with the Prime Minister. Incredible. But it meant I couldn't come back as a civil servant. So I went and worked for a big record company, EMI, for, for two years. So I had that buffer period. And then I went back into government as a special advisor. And somewhere around this time, you're also considering a career in comedy. For example, you were a semi-finalist in Channel 4's stand-up contest, So You Think You're Funny. Can you explain quite... I mean, lots of people say there is comedy in Westminster. It just often isn't intentional. Um, so how, what, what kind of drove you to the comedy career in the background? So I start doing comedy when I'm still a civil servant and I'm in my kind of mid-twenties and I feel I'm having this quarter-life crisis. So a friend and I went out and wrote like a ridiculous list of, you know, if you could do anything you wanted in your life, what would you do? And I think her stupid fantasy thing was cabaret singer and my stupid fantasy thing was stand-up comedian. And then literally a week later, she saw a course advertised in the Evening Standard saying, do you think you're funny? We're running the first ever night course for, for stand-up comedians so that's how I I got into it Um, and on your course was Greg Davies yeah Greg Davies and Rod Gilbert and many other sort of luminaries of but this course was ridiculous because it doesn't really teach you how to be funny it was more like there was a group of people who all wanted to try and do stand-up so you formed these networks you then went out and started doing stand-up but the first gig you did was in front of all your friends and all your family and I have to say the DTI press office was so supportive I mean, Patricia Hewitt was sending me messages of support. The entire, like half the civil service came to support me. So you do your first gig, which was not that good, but everyone laughed. And I was like, I am a comedy genius. So then you throw yourself onto the open mic circuit and like no one's laughing. And you're like, excuse me, is this on? Because this just killed in front of a bunch of DTI civil servants. So like, it was hard on the, and I'd have this mad world where I'd be like Patricia Hewitt's press officer in my wee suit and heels. Then I'd go and change into my jeans and get picked up at like you know Watford and drive to some unforsaken place and do some crappy stand-up gig for five quid and arrive back in London like three o'clock in the morning and then come back to work the next day and this is a unfair and cruel question but can you is there any a particular joke that bombed the most the you regret so many so up my worst ever gig moment was I was doing this gig in this place called the purple turtle which was I've been there yeah it's like people used to call it the purple toilet it was really and it was quite a rocky kind of it was kind of a lot of rockers in Camden yeah they had used to have one in Angel in Islington and they used to have this open mic night and my set was going so badly that in the middle of my set they just put the music up they they just all this like highway to hell all this like kind of rock music starts coming out and I'm going excuse me excuse me I think you'll find I've still got three minutes to go and they're like no you don't get off the stage yeah I don't know if it's even cruel to be kind but yeah um, so so you eventually decide perhaps this isn't the career for you on the comedy? Well, no, I'll have you know it was all going very, very Sorry, well. Sorry, very well. <laughs> no, but what, what happened was I'm working at EMI. I'm doing a lot of stand-up, ton and ton of stand-up. In fact, the day I got my job offer to go and work for Harriet Harman, I also got a job offer to go and work with a production company that's very closely associated with Rory Bremner. So it was a bit of a sliding doors moment about which way do I go. But I did miss Westminster and it was Gordon Brown had had become Prime Minister, Harriet Harman had won the deputy leadership, things were changing at Westminster and I just felt this sort of tug and I thought 
I do want to get I do want to get involved in politics and then you know went in to see Harriet got got the job and I just thought I've just got to do it like I've I've had this yearning and I'm a political animal and what a great experience it would be to be a special advisor now you worked uh, for Labour for eight years what surprised you about working politics full-time and I suppose being on the you said the dark side so we'll go with that being on the dark side compared to the civil service so you have so much more influence as a special advisor I mean special advisors I think it's it's an it's a subject which is so important in politics and we talk about it so little people really don't understand what special advisors do about the roles they have the responsibilities they have the influence they have it is a great job in many many ways um you often have more influence than many junior ministers in the department but that responsibility and power is often bestowed on people who are quite young who don't have a lot of experience who aren't really kind of you know trained in 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 how to be a good special advisor i think what was good for me is having been a civil servant for for quite a long time and i worked very well with special advisors to then become a special advisor, I sort of knew how to handle the civil service because I had been one of those civil servants. So I was very mindful about not setting up a you know them and us attitude. I was very mindful about bringing civil servants with me. The equality bill that you mentioned was actually very, very hard to negotiate. The other thing I think I found was that some of the battles I had were not external battles they were battles with other special advisors in other departments. I think one of the things I never expected was how competitive special advisors are in terms of they guard their sort of fiefdoms of their departments. They are the masters of their boss. And if, you know, two bosses are sort of fighting on something, then the civil, then the special advisors carry that on. I, I found it much more aggressive than I thought I would. I thought I'd sort of be part of this big labour tribe and everybody would get on well. And also there weren't that many women, very, very blokey, very male, very aggressive. I was working on women's issues and I would ring people up in number 10 and they would just fall about laughing. I'd be like, hi, um, it's Aisha calling here from Harriet Harman's office. Just want to talk about, you know, equality issues. And I could hear them all like rolling their eyes and, you know, it was just like, oh, for God's sake. So it was, it was brilliant, but it was, it wasn't easy. And I suppose what one thing that's quite interesting at the moment is Dominic Cummings appears to be wanting to revamp or change how special advisors operate to a degree. So there's been nothing completely confirmed yet, but there does seem to be a push towards, I suppose, making sure special advisors are, yes, someone who can do lots of different things a bit and more specialised. So there's some talk that special advisors, along with civil servants, could have to sit exams to show they know what's happening in their department. Do you think that there is a lack of specific expertise from your experience as a special advisor and meeting others? Yes, I do. And I think, you know, it's not often you'll hear me say that I completely agree with Dominic Cummings, but I think he is on to something here. As I said earlier, a good set of special advisors can enhance the government's ability to get things done in a way which is, you know, swift and, you know, less painful and more constructive. But I do feel that with special advisors, there's no qualifications for why you become a special advisor. There isn't any discernible aptitude or expertise you need to have. There is too much nepotism. And sometimes there are very, very good special advisors, but there are also a lot of special advisors who you just look at and you think, 
why have what really qualifies you for this job other than you brown nose the right person and your face and your name and maybe your family background kind of fits for fits for this gig right now we should actually have special advisors i think who are older who have had life experience industry experience who have worked outside of just very very narrow political silos like a think tank or a small publication or a website or something like that so i think there should be quite a radical overhaul of of special advisors now looking at your career you obviously served under gordon brown but also ed Miliband. so what was it like going from being in government to being in opposition what prepares you for that Nothing can really prepare you. It was such a shock, particularly I had only worked under a Labour government as a civil servant and then as a special advisor. And I think I had not appreciated what a luxurious and possibly historical position that was. I mean, I don't know when there will be another Labour government. We may not be looking at one for a long time. And things aren't easy in government. Sometimes you think people outside think you have much more power than you actually do. But my God, you miss it so much the day you fall out of power and into opposition. You know, one of the first things is just getting your head around about how utterly irrelevant you are as an opposition. And I think that was a very difficult thing for the Labour Party bigwigs to get their head around. So they had been working their way up to getting the red box, to having the private office, the ministerial position. You know, what can I do and they quite like the trappings of it and suddenly having none of that and no ability to really influence anything when you're in opposition you have to be inventive you have to be creative you have to be enthusiastic you have to be energetic you have to always look for angles to get your name in the press to like do campaigning work on to craft you know new ideas for new legislation and I think that is something which lots of Labour people found really really hard when we went into into opposition they still felt that they were in government and they still behaved and thought like they were junior government ministers and they weren't yeah so it's almost so you're the one who's waiting for people to call you back yes yes and also kind of not understanding why the world the media is just not hanging on your every word and you're like why haven't why hasn't Newsnight rung like why hasn't like question time been on the phone it's like because you are like we're irrelevant now like it doesn't matter what we what we say or do and you have to re-engineer your mindset and weirdly this is why and you know I don't hold no candle for Jeremy Corbyn at all but I think that's another reason why there was so much affection for him he was actually in some ways an easier leader of the opposition than Ed Miliband was because Ed had used to be was used to having power and influence. He'd been a cabinet minister. He'd been at the heart of the treasury. Similarly with Ed Balls and people like Douglas Alexander and Yvette Cooper, was Jeremy Corbyn had never really had that power before and he was just naturally liked campaigning on things. So in a way, he sort of took to that aspect of it like a bit better, I think. Now let's talk about Prime Minister's questions and prep for it because it... I suppose if we're looking at anywhere where you can combine some of your work on comedy with politics, it is Prime Minister's Questions. Talk us through prepping the various politicians you have, and I suppose who was more uphill? So the main two I worked with was Harriet and and Ed Miliband. I did used to get asked to write 
random jokes for Gordon Brown, but they never saw the light. I'd get a text going, could you text us in a joke now? Like it was some sort of service where you just like texted in a random gag. I was like, what, do you want a knob gag? Do you want a <laughs> deficit? What kind of gag are you after sort of thing? So, I mean, Harriet and Ed were very, very different. Harriet was very clear about what she wanted to, to see. She was always very clear about what she wanted her argument to be. And quite often she because feminism is a huge part of her brand she was always quite keen to do something on on that so that joke you mentioned about the William Hague you know we you know we we had some fun with stuff like that but it was it was still very stressful for her it's stressful for anybody doing prime minister's question if you're not stressed by it i don't think you're a very good politician because you should be stressed about it you should care deeply about it it's a nerve-wracking exhilarating sort of high wire moment ed was pretty tough to prepare for PMQs, partly because he cared about it so, so much. He knew the stakes were high. He used to get a pretty tough time in the chamber from David Cameron, you remember. I mean, I've I've told this story before, but it, it just shows you how nervous Ed was. You know, David Miliband, after David Miller, David Cameron, Freudian, would just rip the piss out of Ed every single week, how he looked, how he sounded, his brother, his dad, his politics, his policies, everything. And Ed would get very nervous going in. So I had to always try and keep him calm. And then this one Wednesday morning, we'd done these six questions on the Badger Cull, which was like a very big issue at the time. It's just like the West Wing. And really good <laughs> questions. And um, he was getting really stress he kept going to the loo and he was texting everyone in the shadow cabinet he kept running his hands through his hair which is lovely dark hair with just a bit of white going through it and we're just about to get into the yeah we're just about to go into the chamber and he turns around he grabs me he's like I've got to ask you something and I'm like oh my god what is it is this something about our deficit reduction plan is it something that Ed Balls said he's like no honestly am I a badger and he was just like yes and I was like no Ed you are a human man go into the chamber now he's like Honestly, are you sure I'm not a badger? And it's like, you're definitely not a badger. And then he's like, can you just get Ed Balls? Can you just get Ed Balls to come here now? And that's to get Ed Balls to run into the room. And it's like, what is it? Like tie flying everywhere going, I've got these figures on the deficit. And he's like, Ed, look at me. We've known each other a long time. Am I a badger? And it was just like, what? So was he worried on? David Cameron's going to turn around and say, you look like a badger, yes. you're a badger, yes. you're trying to protect yourself. Yeah, you're a badger. Cull. That is um, how triggered Ed was. And that didn't come to pass. He, he, funnily enough, it, funnily enough, David Miliband, uh, David Cameron did, I keep saying this, I keep saying this, I keep, David Cameron, but, but to be fair to Ed, one time Ed did get a slightly weird haircut and David Cameron out of nowhere just went, Basil Brush. <laughs> This random Basil Brush comment. We were all in the in the gallery going, what? And Ed was going, honestly, I can't believe this haircut. <laughs> it was just like... <laughs> What's it like? Watch, you know, you've written a brilliant joke, say, a one-liner, and then you sit in the gallery and you watch your person completely mess it up. Oh, it's horrendous. It is absolutely horrendous. It's a combination, and I don't have children, but I imagine how this feels. Like, because you care about that person so much, it's probably like watching your child do really badly at some, at like, I don't know, the nativity play, like, pooing themselves at the nativity play or something, or, like, being a football manager and watching your team getting, like, humped, you know, 13-0. And, and also, everyone's looking at your face, so you sit in that press box with the... And if you're, like, oh, head and hands... I mean, I have got quite an expressive face, and I I think I could probably people could probably tell when you know we we hadn't had a good but one of the things that Ed did really do which is important is he did you have to put the effort in at prime minister's questions because 
it is the moment of the week. I know everybody slags it off and it has gone massively downhill because of Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May, People, two people who were so appalling at PMQ, such appalling orators. They're the only human being that made the other one look good. I mean, that, and then you had John Burke, it, it went, you know, PNQs went on for like three days, like people were growing beards, like the sort of seasons were changing. So I think there is a, I really hope that whoever leads the Labour Party next will restore some dignity to PMQs because it is something where even if you are, it doesn't make you necessarily win elections, I'm not saying that, but it can give your party a bit of pride if you go out and, and really put in a good innings, you do your research, you have forensic questions, and that certainly was not happening. We tried to do that with Ed, and sometimes we, we did succeed. And certainly when I obviously got to know David Cameron and, and George Osborne, you know, they always said, look, you kept us on our toes, like you made life difficult for us. That's what the next leader of the opposition has to do. Now, let's talk about the present day. It's a good segue. And um, just before, before we get there, you, you may not want to comment on this, but you received an MBE after you finished your career. And at the time, there were rumours that you had been put forward for a peerage, but it had been overruled. I know. Uh, did you did you ever get wind of this? Or I did sort of get wind of it, but I think I didn't, I just wasn't qualified because I wasn't a white man. So, you know, I think, I think case closed, you know, hey, them's, them's, them's just the way, that's just the way it is. So instead, you've had a, <laughs> since leaving politics, you've had a very, career um you had your comedy show which had a certain title to it which was girl on girl on girl katie yeah. i think we can reveal that uh, katie helped me with the title because i was umming and eyeing about it my agent thought it was a bit too saucy and a bit too rude and katie was like no it's brilliant go for it yeah and you it helped and i think it was a massive hit it was. It was a really big. So thank you very much. Now, I think if we look to the present day, you talked about the next Labour leader needs to do. How do you feel about the state of the contest right now? Do you think that it is that it has a level of soul searching it should? Because there's been some who've complained that if you look at Liberal Democrats, they're not even looking at picking their new leader until after the Labour leadership has been done. You've got various um, post-mortems currently underway but are for the Labour result in the general election, but it doesn't feel so a lot of them will be out till basically you've pretty much picked who's going to succeed. So I wonder what you thought about the state of debate. I'm really, really worried about it. And after the awful, awful harrowing defeat, I did think, right, okay, we are finally going to have a moment of collective clarity about how badly wrong this project has gone. And I think that existed for about 48 hours. And then I'm afraid the length of the contest has made people slip into sort of group amnesia about what just happened. Like we had our worst defeat in living memory and yet all the candidates, loads of the activists, lots of the sort of outriders on media and social media are sort of luxuriating in this delusion that somehow we won this big argument with the public and that somehow we did really, really well and like more of the same, please. That's definitely the message that they're getting from the public. Please, sir, can we have some more? And I feel absolutely horrified about this because I do think the Labour Party has probably got one last shot at trying to revive itself and at the moment because the campaign look I get that if you are going to win this electorate you can't go out there and be like hey I'm 
I'm Tony Blair now or I'm I'm somewhere right of Genghis Khan. Of course you can't do that. And nor should you do that as well. This is about labour values. But if we have absolutely no discussion about the things that we got wrong, in the fact that you have Rebecca Long Bailey giving Jeremy Corbyn 10 out of 10, I'm interviewing a lot of the leadership candidates um, for the evening stand at the moment. None of them will say anything honest about the, the cataclysmic failure of leadership shown by Jeremy Corbyn. So I am worried about this. I'm worried that psychologically we are all sort of fooling ourselves. And then it's going to be very difficult to sort of pivot to the public. I think to be leader of the... I, I had um, Jim Messina saying this on the radio, and it's so true, because the Democrats are going through the same thing. It's not an either-or. The candidate, a progressive candidate, whether it's in America or whether it's here, has got to do two things. He or she has got to both excite the base and excite the public. They should not be two things in conflict with each other. They should be the sort of same side of the coin. Now, just on, I suppose, some of your critics, um, there are two sides to this. So (laughs) we're going to go for the first band first, which is... um, You have been critical of Jeremy Corbyn in the past. It has brought its own criticism, but ultimately in the general election, you you helped some Labour MPs with campaigning. You very much were suggesting people should vote Labour. And I think since then, some have said to people such as yourself, if you really thought Jeremy Corbyn was anti-Semitic, if you really thought there were such issues, I suppose their argument would be like, you don't have a leg to stand on going forward because you were still happy enough to say people should vote Labour. And I was wondering, what do you say to your critics on that? So on that, I was not saying to everybody to vote Labour I was saying actually vote to stop a Tory that was my actual in fact I was one of the people that was saying you know if necessary vote Lib Dem to stop a, a Tory but I think you have to have a you have to have a grown up approach to politics Jeremy Corbyn is one man in a movement that has been going for a hundred years. He's only been leader of the party for sort of the last five years. The idea that people like me and others who have dedicated their lives, I've dedicated my child-bearing years to progressive causes, the idea that we just F off and like vacate the pitch, well, what would that leave? We now actually have a leadership contest where I am so glad that we actually have a, a reasonable number of sane, progressive, sensible Labour MPs who are putting themselves forward, who are trying to kind of reclaim the the, the party. So I think I understand that people are sort of hurt, but I think that's a very immature and illiterate attitude to politics. So if you don't like what's going in politics, you just vacate the pitch. Well, I'm sorry, if you create a vacuum all you do is allow the the most nefarious elements of politics and in the Labour Party to sort of do that. So I make absolutely no apology for campaigning for people like Rosie Duffield, for Preet Gill. I mean, I campaigned a lot for sort of women. So yeah, I make absolutely no apologies for that at all. Now, one other question, Critics, and we end with two nice ones. <laughs> so the other group that sometimes criticise you, I think we could call them the Corbynites. Sometimes. So, just sometimes. Just sometimes. Jeremy just sometimes. Corbyn supporters. Just and there's a sense, I think, particularly in the aftermath of this election defeat for Labour, everyone's kind of reading various things into it. And as you touched on it, sometimes it doesn't feel like it's it's addressing some of the big issues you were involved in a twitter spat with ash sarkar Mm -hmm. just quite soon after the result and clearly emotions were running high and in it i mean i won't get completely into it but you said you know you're literally a communist walks like sending her up for some of the stuff she is in a twitter bio yeah i feel that often there's a criticism in the media that we want to make things into cat fights particularly when 
it's women versus a woman. So I was wondering, do you regret the kind of way that became a Twitter spat between the two of you, or do you, or do you stand by your comments there? Well, I, I, I do, I hate fighting with other women. In fact, I hate fighting. I'm not a naturally confrontational person. I hate doing that, and that's one of the things that I really, really hate about Twitter. It sort of has, it forces you, even though you might be quite a mild-mannered, weakling into having to sort of defend yourself and having to have these fights with people I on the whole I tend to shy away from those kind of things but on that night I was and am still so devastated by what happened to the Labour Party and the loss and we may well have five maybe ten years of a conservative government and in fact the person in question actually attacked me first and so I thought, right, okay, the, the gloves are off. And I do actually feel a lot of these young outriders for Corbyn did untold damage to the party's prospects. These are people who many of them haven't even been members. I think the person in question may have only joined the Labour Party a couple of weeks beforehand, when there are people, myself and others, who have really dedicated their lives to... And we all want a Labour government. There's the, the other thing which I find very upsetting from the critics on the other side who say to people like me and to Jess Phillips and everybody else, oh, you're just Tories, you're just Tories, you're just all right wing. And it's like, what an insult. Like, what, not if you want to be a Tory, be a Tory, but you're not, if you are a member of the Labour Party, if you've dedicated your life to the Labour Party, you are not a Tory, right? And the idea that you, on the other side, have the sort of monopoly on virtue and, and good, when actually we all worked really hard to make things happen. The minimum wage, flexible working for families, more maternity rights, you know, the work that Harriet Harman did, you know, on sort of domestic violence, the Equality Act that, that I, you know, spent years sort of working on. I think that is very, very hurtful to our side of politics. It actually reminds me when I was growing up and people say, one, you F off back to where you came from. It actually reminds me, it's that level of nastiness and ex- authoritarianism and exclusion And I really hate it. And I think it has done such damage to the brand of the Labour Party. Now, two slightly lighter questions to end the podcast, (laughs) moving from that. Just in terms of the Labour leadership candidates, I was wondering which of the remaining candidates would you most likely be trapped on a desert island with if you had to be? So we've got Keir Starmer, Lisa Nandy, Rebecca Long-Bailey, and we're going to go with Emily Thornberry for the time being. So I think... I haven't made up my mind who I'm supporting, but yeah, I, no, think, I know you have much wise. I think I'm going to go for Lisa Nandy only because I just recently interviewed her and I have been out in a few quite a few nights out with her and I love a bit of karaoke and she's really bad at karaoke. She's told me this, like she did a very bad rendition of Little Mix Black Magic. So I think I'd probably like to be with her because A, we'd have a laugh, B, we do loads of karaoke, and B, I probably like can say that I'm like the better singer. Good reasons. And finally, it's a question we ask everyone who comes on this podcast, which is what's the worst advice you've ever been given in your life? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so like when, when I was going to university, somebody for some reason sort of said to me, you should totally get into rowing. It's like really, 
really brilliant and you'd be really good at it and it's just like it's going to really open loads of doors now you might think I had gone to Oxford or Cambridge from this but I went to Britain's third great university Hull University which does not have a beautiful river it has a river next to like a sewage plant and a chemicals plant so I ended up joining the freaking rowing society and as you can see I'm quite short and definitely not built for rowing I just ended up just randomly spending three years rowing at university when I could have been doing... I could have actually probably got into politics at university and maybe I would have got into my political career a lot earlier. So I think that was literally the worst advice. And I was, I, then I became a cox and I was so bad at coxing, really bad, got no sense of direction. We were doing this race in Durham and I massively crashed the boat into this bridge and knocked out a sculler and I think he went to hospital. It was awful. It was terrible. So that was my worst ever advice. So rowing is not the networking opportunity that everyone no. sees. Okay. No. <laughs> well, with that, thank you very much for joining us today, Aisha. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any of our many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.